you know, right now we're experiencing a divine reset across the country. What if we took a weekly Sabbath reset? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, we're going to have a special and important broadcast today. I believe it could be life-changing for many of you listening and watching. Welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown, and the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. As long as the question is Jewish-related in any way or relates to a topic that I bring up on the show— You are welcome to call with your question. You can just need information. You can want to disagree with me on something. Perfectly fine. 866-34-TRUTH. A little later in the broadcast, since it is April 16th and since we are at the end of Passover, I do want to look at some words that spoke of some major shifts that were going to happen regarding the virus around this time, April 15th, 16th, specifically mid-April has been spoken of. So I want to honestly evaluate that. And then make some larger observations about prophetic ministry today. So we're going to be doing that. But first, I want to start here. I have a new article that is up on the stream and on our website. And the title of the article is this, The Shutdown, The Sabbath, and a Weekly Divine Reset. So we're in this unique season now that none of us have ever lived through before. None of us have ever lived through this season where things are shut down the way they are as long as they are and potentially for quite a ways ahead of us. So in a time like this, you want to seize the moment. At a time like this, you want to say, God, what are you saying to us? At a time like this, you want to learn and you want to grow and you want to, you want to change wherever you can. I'm reading about people that are known for narcissism and carnality, and they're talking about looking at more important things in life and investing more time in family or, or deepening their own character. And it's just because normal life with all of its distractions is put on hold. I remember one night some years ago when the internet went out in our house and there was no online content for a period of hours. So that meant no emails coming in and out and no social messaging, media messaging, and no updating posts, no watching anything, no catching up on news, nothing. And I remember that night, just in prayer and reflection, I felt I got more insights from the Lord than normal. I thought, yeah, well, I shut off the distractions. There have been many times in prayer where I'm so aware of, you know, texts on my phone and emails to respond to and something I want to study here that I just have to turn everything off, close the computer, put the phone on silent, shut the lights and just get on my face alone with God to get quiet to meditate, to pray more deeply, to focus, to listen more. So we're in a situation where, not by our choice, things have been shut down in unique ways. And quite a few Christian leaders are hearing the same thing. This is time for a divine reset. And it's almost self-evident. You don't have to be a prophet to hear that. Time for a divine reset. 
Just don't go back to life as normal. My new book, When the, when the World Stops, Words of Faith, Hope, and Wisdom in the Midst of Crisis that comes out in, in five days, I deal with that. That What is God saying to us in the midst of this? How can we seize this moment? But here's the question. Once life goes back to normal, so to say, once you're at your normal work activities and kids are in their normal school activities and you have more of the distractions, the restaurants and the movie theaters and the sports arenas and everything else going on and and, and there's that cycle of life, how do we not fall back into our old habits? And the answer is a regular weekly reset, otherwise known as the Sabbath. Now, My purpose here and in my article is not to say that Sabbath observance is mandatory for all Christians in terms of a specific day as as opposed to finding Sabbath rest in the Messiah and other debates we could have. Nor am I debating whether the Sabbath must be kept on Saturday, whether Christians can keep it on Sunday, does any day do, not getting into that debate. Those are all important subjects, all worthy of discussion but not where I'm going today. Let let me read some quotes to you. Uh, Perhaps the man who authored the most famous contemporary book on the Sabbath is the Jewish thinker, the late Abraham Joshua Heschel. And, And he referred to Sabbath as a sanctuary in time. And he said that the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. He said they are the Jewish equivalent of sacred architecture. So, so what, did, what did he mean? The Sabbaths are our great cathedrals, the Jewish equivalent of sacred architecture. Well, he said that one of the most distinguished words in the Bible is the word kadosh, holy, a word which more than any other is representative of the mystery and majesty of the divine. He says, now, what was the first holy object in the history of the world? What is it? Was it a mountain? Was it an altar? Yeah, it's a good question. What's the first thing in the Bible that God called holy? Heschel answers, It is indeed a unique occasion at which the distinguished word kadosh is used for the first time. In the book of Genesis, at the end of the story of creation, how extremely significant is the fact that it is applied to time, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. There is no reference in the record of creation to any object in space that would be endowed with the quality of holiness. So when God made the whole world and the human race, he said it was good. Then he said it was very good, but he didn't say it was holy, set apart for the divine in that same way. But when he rested from his labors, he called the seventh day holy. And Heschel is saying that when we enter into that, we enter into a sanctuary in time, not a physical sanctuary, but a sanctuary in time, and in that place, encounter God, encounter holiness on a deeper level. And, and one of the things that happens is it is supposed to be a time for reset, for refreshing, for renewal, for recharging, for reinvigorating. You stop, you rest on some level, you cease from normal labors on some level. Now, obviously, if, you, if, if you've got four little kids at home, you know, ages four, twins at two, and then a six-month-old, that the Sabbath is still a time when there are things you have to do, all right? But to the extent we can pull away from other things, to the extent that we can make time to rest and recharge and reflect, 
and, and step back and look at life. Okay, what really matters? How am I spending my time? What's really important? And get God's perspective. To that extent, we live lives that are different. Uh, let me read another quote here. Uh, this is from Cheryl Miller in her book on the Sabbath titled Rhythms of Rest. She said, rest provides fine-tuning for hearing God's messages amidst the static of life. So let me read that again. She said, rest provides fine-tuning for hearing God's messages amidst the static of life. Now look, you may need to have a situation, just like couples have date nights and things like this. You may, if you're busy parents, work out a schedule where, say, dad, you give your wife a certain time. It could be one night <clears throat> where she doesn't have to think about anything. You, you bring in dinner to eat. She doesn't have to cook. Dishes, just fast food stuff, whatever, healthy. Okay, just throw out stuff when it's done or you take care of the cleaning everything and, and you're going to take care of the kids. And she can just get in a room for a few hours and worship or read or re- just what she wants to do to recharge. When our kids were growing up, uh, so I was working a full-time job and then in grad school as well, so so busy, and then doing some ministry within our church. But we would work things out so that certain time of the day, like on a Saturday, that I'd, I'd just be taking care of the kids. And Nancy could go out and, and do things that she just wanted to do to just be on her own a little bit and just not have other cares. And, and if whatever was best going to suit her, it would, be a, it would be a good, healthy time for her. We may not be able to do everything in the same structured Sabbath way, all right? And, and, and obviously, we don't have all the traditions that Judaism has, which if you're raised with them can be beautiful. If you're coming from the outside, they can often seem oppressive, you know, Sabbath traditions and things like that. But either way, consider the idea of divine reset. Consider the idea of regular stepping back. I have pastor friends who once a month will go away for a full day just to get along with the Lord, just them and their Bible, and just pray and worship and read the Word and do it for a day. I have friends who will take one month at the beginning of the year and get off all social media and just pull back and spend more time seeking the face of God. You know, I was, I was looking at my schedule at the end of the year for our board. My assistant Dylan will just put together, okay, Here's when you're out speaking and numbers of trips and different things like this. So at the end of last year, I looked at it and I thought, whoa, that's more than I want to be on the road. I mean, on the road, between traveling and speaking, 200 days or more, plus doing the daily radio show. Yes, yeah, so sometimes having to do it on the road, daily radio show, five days a week. Then we published five books last year. And then I wrote more than 250 articles, and then we produced more than 450 videos, including the daily radio show. I looked at all that and thought, I need to slow down. Oh, I'm not tired, not burnt out, actually thriving. But I thought, that's, that's too much time traveling. I need more time being, more time in the presence of God, more time stopping and reflecting and studying and deepening and sharpening my pen as I write. One of my friends went to Wheaton College, Wheaton University now, decades ago, and there was a professor there who literally scheduled out every hour of his week. And he came into class one day all excited. He said, yesterday, 
It turns out I had one hour free unexpectedly, so I just did something spontaneous. He said, and it was so amazing. I'm going to schedule one hour a week for spontaneity. (laughs) Schedule spontaneity. Well, how about we schedule one day a week or one season in the week, one, one segment of time for renewal, for stepping back, for reset, for reflection, for taking stock. I believe if we do, it will be life-changing, and it's one of the reasons that God gave Israel the Sabbath. All right, we'll be right back. Your Jewish-related calls are welcomed, 866-34-TRUTH, and then I want to candidly discuss some questions about prophetic ministry today. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. Thanks so much for joining us. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH on this Thursday, Jewish Thursday. I'm going to go to the phones shortly. Any Jewish-related question you have, be my joy to answer. All right, we are now at April 16th. We are now in the middle of this month. We are now at the end of the Passover season. And this was a time when different prophetic leaders today said that there would be a shift, that we would come to the end of the first phase of dealing with the virus and be entering a second phase, where there would be a diminishing And before that, there were other prophetic voices basically saying this is not going to touch America or this is not going to be as bad as everyone is saying. All right. It seems right now that those words were wrong, that those words were not accurate or not correct. Now, I say it seems right now because it's possible that later today, President Trump is going to say, "Okay, we've just finished the first phase and now. We're about to make changes in our policies, and and we believe that the peak deaths have been reached and things are going down from here, and we're now instituting policies about change, this and that, and then we'll look back and say, wow, the shift came in mid-April. But at this point, from this vantage point, especially words saying that nothing was going to touch America or that it would be minimal or that this is not as bad as everyone is saying, it appears at this point that those words were not accurate. Okay, now I want to say a bunch of things here. Number one, some could say, look, there were predictions about tens of millions of dying. I I saw one prediction from someone who had been in the Obama administration saying that 15 million Americans could die. And then others were talking about multiplied tens of millions worldwide. So if we end up with a couple hundred thousand deaths, then obviously it's nowhere near what some were predicting. Even the predictions about America have been brought way down, way down, way down. But that could be because of the radical measures that have been taken. There's a debate about that. Some say the radical measures are not making the difference. The difference is coming for other reasons. But either way, if the words were specifically spoken in context about people are saying it's going to be multiplied tens of millions who die, and it's not going to be anywhere near that, it's not going to be a fraction of what people are saying, well, If we end up with a few hundred thousand deaths, 
That would be true. However, as I heard the words initially, it was that it would not be going on this long, that the casualties would not be what they are right now. And therefore, I would say those words are not accurate. Those words were false. Now, words about things happening in the middle of April, at this moment, they don't look accurate either. We may see, as I said, looking back a few weeks from now, or or as news breaks over the rest of the day, there may be some reasons to say, oh, there was something to it. Because the the words didn't say it's going to end here or stop here, but it's going to be the end of one phase, the beginning of another, and a clear diminishing. So we shall still see. But at this point, there's nothing dramatic that's happened as of now. There's nothing dramatic that's happened in the society as of now. You say, oh, so they're false prophets. No, no, no. False prophets, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. They are not servants of God who said something that was not accurate. All right? They are not men of God who love the Lord and otherwise preach the gospel of Jesus and say something not accurate. Did they prophesy falsely? At this point, it looks like the answer is yes. You say, ah, so then you don't believe anything they have. They have to say, ah, here's where we have our difference. I believe right now that the critics are right in exposing a lot of our charismatic prophecy as being off and unreliable. On the flip side, they are absolutely wrong in rejecting prophetic ministry today. It's a question of the purpose of prophetic ministry. Now, if God wanted to warn us about something to come, like in Acts, the 11th chapter, Agabus has a word about famine coming. And the, the believers hear it, the apostles, the others, they hear it, and they conclude, okay, based on this, we need to take up an offering to help the poor saints in Jerusalem, because if famine's coming, there's going to be hardship, and they're often hit the worst. There was a practical reason for it, so there would be a certain response, but otherwise, there's no indication in the New Testament that before God does something in the earth that he has to tell his prophets. You say, yeah, but Amos 3 says that God won't do anything without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. That was an Old Testament reality. Now in the New Testament, we are a prophetic people, and the purpose of prophecy in many ways has shifted. Did God seem to give words to a number of different people in unusual ways about Donald Trump becoming president? Yes. And it got a lot of attention in advance, and I believe God was speaking it, the unlikelihood of it, the way it happened, the people that received it, a whole list of things would make me say, yeah, God was doing that maybe because it was such a strange and unlikely thing that, that Trump would be a pro-life champion or strong for Israel or strong for, strong for our religious rights, that, that it was getting our attention. But let's also be candid. There have been other words that said Romney was going to be elected. Now, they didn't come the same way. It seemed more just wishful thinking, which is why everything must be tested. New Testament prophecy is different than Old Testament prophecy. New Testament prophecy is two or three speak, 1 Corinthians 14, and then the others weigh carefully. They weigh it to seek to discern. No, we don't. We, we feel that was the Lord or that was a mixture of, of what God was saying and what you were saying. The same with, with 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul gives directives, don't despise prophecy. He also gives a directive, don't put out the Spirit's fire. What do you do? Test everything and hold fast to the good. We don't stone someone who gets it wrong. We simply say, okay, you've hurt your credibility. And we do not make decisions on a prophet saying, thus and such is going to happen. You better all move out of this area before the earthquake comes. Unless that person has had striking accuracy for years and years on a national level. It's just, well, God can speak to me. I'm his child. God can speak directly to any of us. We're his children. 
You say, well, Mike, why are you making excuses? I'm not making excuses. I'm saying that words that have been spoken this far, some of them seem to be plainly wrong, and some, unless something very clear is, is shifting in these days that will be very obvious in the days ahead, words spoken about time frame today, those are also wrong. At the same time, some of those people seem to have received accurate information about other things going on today. And more importantly, for every one example of one of these prophetic brothers or sisters getting something wrong or not seeing what was coming, you know, gathering at the end of the year and praying, what do we see coming for the next year and and not getting a, a lot of it right? For every example of that, there are probably 50 or 100 or 1,000 or 5,000 examples of specific words they had into specific situations and specific lies that have been incredibly, mind-bogglingly, Jesus-glorifyingly accurate. And I'm an eyewitness to, to many of these things, and some have happened in my own life, and here and there some have happened through me. <clears throat> I mean, shockingly accurate. I mean, amazingly accurate. There's a young man that I know that worked as an administrator for a large charismatic ministry, and if you ask me, give me a list of a thousand people that you think would do well in Washington, that work with senators and governors and have access to key leaders, and who do you think would be? If you ask me for a thousand names, five thousand names, ten thousand names, I would not have put this fellow's name on the list. I would not have. Well, I lose touch with him for a while. I run into him in D.C., and he's a suit and tie. I've never seen him in anything but a jeans and T-shirt. Suit and tie. What's with the suit and tie? He's just gotten off the phone with several governors as they're, they're planning about doing something together. He's working with so-and-so's presidential campaign. It's like, what in the world? And he said, oh, yeah, this, this one well-known prophetic sister, he said, she had a word over me. You need to buy three suits because you're going to Washington and you're going to work in D.C. and you're going to work with congressmen. and go- I mean, a, a specific word. And then immediately after that, someone calls him and says, God just told me to buy you three suits for... I mean, crazy stuff like that. Example after example after example after example after example I can give you. Here's one that I have in my book, Playing with Holy Fire. There's a prophetic brother at a home Bible study. There's a woman there at the Bible study, and he gets a word for her. Say to her from the Lord, God says to you, I hate mommies and daddies. What? That's unscriptural. Honor your father. and What? Well, obviously it meant something else. He felt compelled to speak it to her. So he did, and she began to break down weeping and received a significant emotional healing in her life. As a girl growing up, her father would come into her room and sexually abuse her and say, we're going to play mommies and daddies, and then he would sexually abuse her. It traumatized her life. Those of you who have been subject to childhood sexual abuse, you can relate. I can't imagine what the horror would be like. It traumatized her, even though she, as she was a believer, she had these deep emotional scars. And here this prophetic brother hears the Lord to say something very unusual, very unexpected, and it, God tells her, I was there, and I hated what you were going through, and it set her free, and it changed her life. One of my colleagues, who's very critical about a lot of the prophetic stuff happening today, went to investigate one of the brothers who had a word about a shift coming in mid-April, and he was critical and questioning things. And he said, well, I looked into one client. He had a word over a woman in a service with scoliosis and told her she was about to be healed and so on. It was a lifelong condition, right? And had a word over her. He said, so I found out who it was. I got her name. I called her. He said, I have amazing news for her. She's completely healed. 
The word changed her life. She's healed. And it, so these things are happening day and night. Prophetic ministry is real and beautiful and wonderful, and God is doing it, and it is thoroughly scriptural, and we should embrace it. At the same time, I do not believe the primary purpose of New Testament prophetic ministry, we discussed the same thing yesterday on the air with Jeremiah Johnson, is predicting the future, especially for our abstract information or to prove that God knows it. When he wants us to hear something, he'll speak it and we'll know it. So I'm saying let's get in our right lane. When we use it rightly, it's amazing and God-glorifying. And every so often, we'll speak on a national level or an international level with a warning or word. But otherwise, we are not primarily just getting the news about what's going to happen tomorrow. And to the extent we try to do that, we're going to mess up. That's my take. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Ah, music from Israel. Welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, 866-34-TRUTH. So we were scheduled to do our next tour in Israel in May. And we had two buses. That was our limits, about 100 people. And basically everything filled. For some months, we were very close to capacity. And now we've had to reschedule it. And we have dates locked in for October. And a bunch of folks, because of the change in schedule, they're not going to be free in October or maybe just needed their refunds because of the life situation. But we had a bunch of cancellations, which means... God willing, we will have openings for our tour in October. It's still a long ways off, but since it's Thursday, Jewish Thursday, I thought I'd mention it to you. If you want to go to Israel, and or we're trusting that life will be back to normal in the positive sense by then, then this would be a great time to go. October is an awesome time to be in Israel. All right, to the phones. Let's start with Troy in Kentucky. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello. Hello, you're on the air. You're on the air, sir. All right, team, are we having the same problem with the phones that we had the other day? Could someone do a quick check on that? Uh, make sure everything is set properly. We had some errors a couple times in the last week. Hopefully got those kinks straightened out. Um, let's see. Uh, let's go to Ricky in Nebraska. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello. Yes, you're on the air. All right, tell you what, uh, I'm so sorry, folks. Uh, guys, can you figure out, please, what our error is so that we can get our callers on here? Uh, it seems that they're not hearing me. Well, I'm, I'm hearing them, but they are not hearing me. So here's what we're going to do. Troy, I'm going to bring you back on, and uh, when you come on, you don't, if, if you don't hear my voice, don't worry about it. You just start asking your questions. Let's try this again. All right, Troy, go ahead. You're on the air. Okay, Dr. Brown. Yes. Uh, so I have a question, but I first wanted to thank you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a Christian, and uh, 
your uh, books uh, equipped me um, very well. Uh, last September, I, I was in uh, Jerusalem for my brother's wedding, and I actually met Tovia Singer on the street, and I was able to, to defend my faith. We had a discussion there, so I, I thank you for your books and, and your, your, uh, the resources that you provided uh, there. Um, on, on the other hand, I have a question. Um, I'm planning on having a discussion uh, with another rabbi this coming uh, following week, and um, I've prepared a little bit on my own, but I wanted to ask uh, your uh, w- what you would have to say um, to his position. So mm-hmm. um, his position is he's uh, he believes that only the five books of Moses are what we can base doctrine on. Everything else is commentary, even the prophets. Um, and so, so because of that position, he basically he basically tries to nullify the Christian argument that there's an exclusive need for Yeshua, for faith in Yeshua. He believes we can just unite on, you know, keeping the commandments together, but he, he nullifies um, the need for Yeshua because it's not explicitly uh, required in the Torah. So my question is, um, how, would, how, how would you go about refuting that position? Right. What kind of rabbi is he? He's uh, Rabbi uh, Asher Meza. Ah, okay. Um, so, what would be the purpose in in dialoguing with him? Uh, well, I, I, I mean, to to debate him, to to reason with him. I'm a I'm a Christian, so I, I would want to want to uh, debate him and you know share the gospel, but ultimately uh, like refute his position. And so, I was wanting your um, I was wanting to ask you how you would do. So, I have a few points in my own studies that I've come up with, but I wanted to ask you how you would how you would refute that position. Yeah, so I'll I'll answer that. Uh, I've had uh, Asher Mays on the on the air a few times. We've interacted. He's interacted with thousands of people. He has no interest in hearing your viewpoint, but rather convincing you of his viewpoint. In other words, it's not like, hey, let's have a conversation because he's open to hear your viewpoint any more than Tovia Singer would want to be. So I don't know unless you just wanted to do it as a learning experience, what the purpose would be. It would be like you know oh. some someone wanting um, you know a new Jehovah's Witness wants to talk to me. It's like, well, if you want to talk to me to see how your position gets demolished, I'm happy to demolish your position. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to persuade me of anything. I'll, I'll try to help you. That would be his view towards you. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's not. He's heard the arguments. He's discussed all these things for for many many years, and his goal is to make proselytes and push in a certain direction. So, in your mind, what would be the purpose of the of the conversation, yeah. Well, uh, well, again, the, the the purpose is not to is not is like not to have an entirely new conversation he's never had. But but the purpose is a lot of his debates he'll challenge Christians on that issue, and and there are certain responses that I feel like I would make that would sort of challenge him. But but I feel like often you know like his position doesn't really get challenged well. It's just so so my purpose would to be to go on to give. Um, some some points that maybe other Christians that he's argued with haven't made to try to challenge and like put a rock uh, in his shoe to challenge his position, which I haven't God. heard done very well yet. Yeah, I, I mean, feel free to do it. It's just when you're dealing with professionals in terms of this is what they do day and night, they're just, it's, it's like a spider with a fly. In, in other words, all you're doing is coming in their web I mean, I've told people for decades with people like Tovia Singer, you know, militant counter-missionaries, like, pray for them. It's the best thing you can do is pray for them because they've, they've dealt with people who can demolish their arguments and they still don't listen. 
Um, so all the time I've spoken with Asher Meza and felt very clearly his arguments were weak and, and wrong, uh, he's still going on doing what he's doing. You know, so I, I just I want you to understand honestly that you're pro- it's going to be a learning experience more than anything, as opposed to that you're going to be able to really get him to think differently. But I, if I was dealing with him, I uh, first the claim that the five books are all all we we have. Um, well, within the five books, you know, Deuteronomy 18, God speaks of raising up a prophet. So that indicates God's going to continue to speak and the people are supposed to listen to the prophets and say, well, who is that? Where are those prophets or that one prophet? I would raise that. I would say, well, the vast majority of what's commanded there, uh, you can't do. Uh, would you, uh, you have to build a tabernacle, doesn't mention the physical temple, tabernacle and sacrifices. So the vast majority of what's required there, you can't do. And therefore, you are bereft of, of atonement and bereft of the ability to, to get into right relationship with God. Uh, so, you know, I come in from that angle. I come in from the angle of the, the divine, uh, the revelation of God in terms of humanity and divinity, that I would show how he can appear in human form, how he's complex in his unity, how he, he can be seen, but he can't be seen. Even within the Torah, you know, from Genesis 18 to Exodus 24 to Exodus 33, where he appears visibly and yet elsewhere it says he can't be seen. I would point to those things in terms of opening his heart uh, that there's more. Um, and, and then, you know, again, understand that he's not really there to hear what you have to say, but rather to further justify his position. And the, you can learn from it. So I'd go in if I were you as a learning experience. Maybe you could plan something that'll make him think, but otherwise, best thing to do is leave it and pray for him after that. So uh, you can shoot us a note, let us know how uh, how things go, and again, just remember my words of wisdom going in. I'm not afraid you're going to get influenced. I don't mean that, but that sometimes we take these challenges that don't really do a lot of good in terms of advancing the gospel. Just just my candid thoughts. All right, God bless you, man. And glad we were able to be of help to you in the past. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Ricky in Nebraska. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for taking my call, man. Love you. You're um, welcome, sir. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, and the, uh, the guy handling the radio program, I, I thank him for letting me ask this question. I don't know how Jewish it is. But it's something that I've been kind of wrestling with, and um, I've been wrestling with it because I've got a lot of friends that are dear brothers in the Lord that are Calvinists, and I just wanted to ask you, because you and James White debated a few years ago, well, actually more than that, best debate I've ever seen on the conversation of uh, Calvinism, Arminianism, and I just wanted to ask you, because I don't think you got a chance to go into depth in that specific debate, but um, Hebrews 7 talks about Jesus interceding for believers, and I know in the debate, Dr. White kind of brought up um, the debate or the uh, the intercession that the that the priest would make in the Old Testament, and how that relates uh, to the nation. So I was just wondering, and the, the overarching question is in regards to losing salvation or walking away. So I'm I'm kind of wrestling with this idea of if Jesus is interceding for us, how does that play out in regards to walking away? Does that make sense? Yeah, because he is he is interceding, and, and we'll we'll answer this because it's it's Hebrews related, so we'll we'll put it in the Jewish related category. Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, he's interceding for us 
But you have to ask the question, what's he specifically interceding for? And if you say, well, his, anything he prays for is 100%, well, why do we still struggle? Why do we still sin? Why do people mess up? Why do people even temporarily backslide and come back? In other words, our will is still involved. So God is helping us, but God is not forcing us. Jesus praying for us is giving us divine aid, but still there are decisions we make with consequences. And quite explicitly in Hebrews, the very real possibility of apostasy is raised over and over. It's raised in the second chapter, speaking to God's people who've received his miraculous help and heard the gospel and been born again. This is the context, calling them brothers in the third chapter. We can drift away. Warning in the second chapter. Warning in the third chapter, we could harden our hearts and turn away in unbelief, and we will not be made partakers of the Messiah unless we persevere until the end. And Hebrews 4, a warning about not entering his rest. Then Hebrews 10, which most of our texts would indicate that someone who has been sanctified by the blood of the Messiah could now go on sin and sin willfully, and all they have to look forward to is fiery judgment. So someone who has already been sanctified by the blood can now walk away into willful sin and face fiery judgment. And that's the fruit of, if, if you died under Moses' law, uh, with two or three witnesses, you could be put to death. How much more severe will the judgment be of someone who is in Messiah and rejects him? And then in the 12th chapter, the same warning in verses 25 to 29, that there'll be much more severe judgment for those who having received grace than rejected. Notice also that Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, but said, I lost one, the son of perdition. So he did pray, right, for his disciples, but one of them was set on evil and was a son of Satan in that regard and was lost. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome to the line of fire. Thanks for joining us on Thirdly Jewish Thursday. Yeah, just saw this headline here. There's a pastor in Louisiana said we're going on with our services and nobody's going to stop us and we're Christians. We don't care if we die of this virus, which, of course, is very selfish because you might infect a whole lot of other people. Well, now there's word that the lawyer of this pastor is himself sick with the virus, and he was in church recently, according to a report that was just sent to me moments ago. There's a reason Scripture says don't test the Lord your God. There's a reason for that. Uh, all right, let us go to Florida. Corbin, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, thank you. Uh, just a quick question about the Servant Song. I yeah. was wondering, sorry if you've had these questions at nauseum, but what are some common Jewish interpretations of who the servant is referring to in those passages? And do you have a personal opinion on who it is? I mean, we know the ultimate fulfillment is Christ, but... You know, was there somebody yeah, of course, in particular this is, I say it was... Yeah, I mean, there's endless discussion okay. about this and endless numbers of books. So I'll make it as concise as I can. Jewish interpretation does not isolate the so-called servant songs in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52, 13 to 53, 12. Uh, 
So Christian interpreters have noticed those standing out in a certain way, and I believe they do, and that they are all Messianic prophecies and, and speak of, of Yeshua specifically. That's how I understand all of those. Jewish interpretation just sees those as part of the references to the servant that begins specifically in Isaiah 41. And when they begin, they begin explicitly with God saying, Jacob is my servant or Israel is my servant. So Jewish interpretation most commonly uh, understands these passages to be referring to Israel as a whole or to the righteous remnant within Israel, because clearly in some ways it does not fit the nation as a whole, but only fit a righteous remnant. For example, Isaiah 53 could not fit the nation as a whole, but could potentially fit a righteous remnant. There are some Jewish interpreters, traditional that will understand some of the passages to refer to the Messiah. Some understand Isaiah 42 to be a Messianic prophecy. Uh, Some understand Isaiah 49 to refer to the prophet himself and not the righteous remnant. Uh, Some understand Isaiah 52, 13 to 15 to speak of the Messiah, with 53 then speaking of the nation as a whole or the righteous remnant. But I believe the clearest way to interpret it is that there are passages speaking of the nation as a whole, the nation in exile, the nation loved by God, but yet deaf and dumb to his purposes, the nation that has been exiled because of its sin. So that is clear in some of the passages. The servant as the nation as a whole needs to be redeemed. The Messiah, who is the ideal righteous one within the nation, is the one who redeems the people. So the nation as a whole, as a servant in exile, needs to be redeemed. The Messiah, as the righteous one within the nation, is the Redeemer. Is it possible that some of the servant passages also refer to a righteous remnant? Certainly verses within Isaiah 40 through 55 refer to the righteous remnant. There are definitely passages that do, but the specific prophecies 42, 49, 50, and 53 I do not believe refer to a righteous remnant. They refer to the righteous remnant of one, namely the Messiah. And that's the right way to interpret those passages. And that's ultimately what they're pointing to and what they are saying. If you want more on that, Corbin, get volume three of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. Volume three, where we get into Messianic prophecy. All right, thank you, sir, for your question. And let's go to Joseph in Mississippi. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thank you, Dr. Brown, for taking my call. You're welcome. A quick question. Uh, regarding the days and nights that Jesus was in the tomb and how that, you know, so so basically I have a friend who is a, a black Hebrew Israelite, and uh, I was making a point to him that the early church met on Sunday because it was the day that the Lord was resurrected, and so they just picked that day as the day that we come together and break bread. And he was telling me that, well, Jesus actually didn't raise on Sunday, he raised on a Saturday because there's not enough time between him dying on a Friday and Sunday to get the three days and three nights in the, in the tomb. You know, as Jesus said, I'll be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So I, I wanted to know what would be your response to that. And you know, Oh, so any, first, how does, yeah, yeah, Joseph, help me understand something. If he sure. says there's not enough time, right, and he mm-hmm. just shortened it by a day, so how did he help himself there? Yeah, um, I, I didn't really quite like really <laughs> grasp of his entire argument. I, I think he moved it to like Jesus being in the 
tomb to Thursday, something like something happened Wednesday and a half right, right. or something like that. And so, yeah, so yeah. that can be debated. In, in other words, you can debate whether he was crucified on a Friday or a Thursday or a Wednesday. It's not a matter of your salvation, right? It's not a matter of, of um, life and death in terms of if you, if you believe one day or the other, okay? The, okay. The, the greatest witness we have would argue that it was Friday and that when he says three days and nights, it's, it's just poetic speech or prophetic speech, and it just it means three days, three nights, which you be part of. So it was part of Friday, all of Saturday, and part of Sunday. But I have no problem right. if, if, he, if he had to die on a Thursday or a Wednesday and you want to argue about mm-hmm. the Sabbaths because of the Passover, it's no big deal. But what's clear is universally known that he rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. That doesn't mean that the Sabbath became Sunday, but you're absolutely right. The believers right, would commemorate right. this either before work or after work. They would meet to worship and celebrate his resurrection. That's how ultimately Sunday became a day that was like the holy day for Christians because of the resurrection you know, that just developed over time. But universal testimony of the early church recognizes that he rose on a Sunday. And the clear reference to the first day of the week, the only possible way to read it in Scripture is that he rose on a Sunday. So you can debate when he was crucified. That's okay. You know, that's okay. even though there's the, the predominant view is Friday, you'd say oh, it could be. Could have been Thursday. Could have been Wednesday. Not a big deal. Where does it say that okay. that's what matters? It doesn't. What matters right, is right. that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and clearly it's the first day of the week. There's, there's no other way to describe it, and, and there's no question that that's universally recognized as the day of his resurrection. So just a, another poor argument, but look, it's tough to have logical arguments when these guys are in such deception. <laughs> you, know, just pray right. for, you know, pray for the truth. Maybe there's a seed you can plant that'll get them thinking, and then if they're angry towards you, you just love them back, all right? Yes, sir. Thank God you. bless you, Joseph. You are very welcome. All right, I got time for another call. Uh, we go to Jesse in Minnesota. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, thanks for having me on, Doctor Brown. You're welcome. All right, so my question is about uh, well, a couple of things in John, and then going back to Genesis. So uh, John one two says he was with God in the beginning, right? So this is something that we know about Jesus that basically Jesus always was. And then, of course, it says in verse 14, and the Word and the word became flesh and tabernacles among us. And then if we go back to, like, Genesis 18, 1, it talks about how uh, Yahweh visited with Abraham, and we understand that is a theophany that kind of means that um, that was Jesus in, in some respect. So yep. my question is really regarding how... Where exactly was Jesus before time began? That's the question, because we know God is above time, he's above matter, he's above all these things in the physical universe. Right, um, so, so but, Jesus, right, Jesus speaks of, of the name of the one that was given. When the Son of God came into this world, right, when the Son of God entered this world, he was given the name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Prior to that, he existed as the Son of God, so eternal God. Wherever God was, the Son was, because the Son is God, just as the Father is God, just as the Spirit is God. So in timeless preexistence, God, triune, always existed. You would say communed within himself. When it was time 
for God to reveal himself, he revealed himself through his son who would be manifest like in Genesis 18, these other places you mentioned. And then for a protracted period of time, physically on the earth, the son came in the person of Jesus. So when it says in the beginning was the word, it's, it's not to say the word was not there before the beginning. The beginning is as far back as we go, right? In terms of, of sequence of things. But from everlasting to everlasting, God is God. From everlasting to everlasting, that's who he is, unchangeable. So the son was always with the father in eternity past. That's why Jesus says in John eight fifty eight before Abraham was, I am. So again, Jesus is the name given. Yeshua is the name given to the son when he takes on human form, but the son eternal preexistent with the father. Hey, Jesse, thank you for the question. I want to thank Kelly for your YouTube contribution. Thank you so much for standing with us. Uh, Kelly, it's an interesting time uh, because I'm not out traveling. And as I travel out and speak, I'm able to receive offerings that help our ministry work and pay our radio bills and pay our staff. But God keeps supplying through people like you. So thank you so much. Much appreciated. And here, uh, Donald Trump tweeting major news conference tonight, the White House, to explain guidelines for opening up America again. Well, that goes back to an earlier prophetic word that said there'd be a transition come to the end of phase one, April 15th or 16th, and start phase two, and there'd be a diminishing. Well, could be truth to that. We said that we've got to wait for the day to go. See, we shall see.